Amen. Well, it's always a uh, more or less unpleasant experience when someone mispronounces or garbles your name or just gets it wrong altogether. Now, I had that experience only once. I was about 12 when my orthodontist, I had long hair at the time, thought I was a girl, um, a very tomboyish girl. He said, what is Alex for? He asked, and he said, Alexia or Alexandria, and my mom was like trying to, I was wearing like a football jersey and everything, so needless to say, I cut my hair later that day. Um, But the reason that that's such an unpleasant experience is because our identity is bound up with our name. Our identity is bound up with our name. In naming my daughter, uh, this became very clear. Uh, I kind of refused to participate in the naming process until she was imminently close. Because how am I going to name someone whom I've never met? And again, today we treat names as more or less empty designations, but it's still an impossible task. A name ought to correspond to the thing it names. Philo, um, an ancient philosopher, said that a name is a second thing attached to the basic matter, like a shadow which accompanies the body. A name, in other words, is a stand-in for a person. You think of that story um, when the children of Israel are at Mount Sinai, and Moses disappears, and they create um, the golden calf, right? And they begin to worship it and have sacrifices before it. And God says, I'm not going to go with his people anymore. And Moses intercedes um, for the people of Israel, and God says, he gives a concession, and what he says is, I'll send the, my angel before them. And he says, but my name will be with him. My name is on the angel. So it's a stand-in for God's presence, God's name. God puts his name on the temple. So a name sums someone up. It declares them and it identifies them. So one can put their name, as we said, on a building or a project or something else. And increasingly, it seems that in our day, people are uncomfortable with the names that are given to them. I should be the one to name myself, in other words. Um, There's a movie I like where the main character, Christine, retaliates against her given name and changes it to Lady Bird. She says, my name is Lady Bird to her mom. And her mom replies, well, actually it's not, and that's ridiculous. Rather than receiving an identity symbolized in her name, she wants to create one. There's even something today called dead naming. It's where you call a person, intentionally or not, a name that they no longer identify themselves by. Some even argue that dead naming is a form of violence, that you're harming a person's well-being. Again, the point is, names are near to identity. And apart from personal names, we identify ourselves with other more established names. In our economy, that's the name of the game. You might be just another James, but you can be associated through your purchases with Rolex or Urban Outfitters or Peloton. You're a part of that group now. You identify your name with theirs. Politics, too, has become another avenue of identity, of self-expression. 
A bumper sticker is less a show of support and more a display of identity. I'm not one of those coastal elites, or I'm not one of those backwater deplorables. Now, in all these scattered examples, the point that I'm trying to make is simple. Again, it's that identity is bound up to names. Our name and the names that we associate ourselves with. And that's where our topic this morning, baptism, enters the picture. We are baptized into a name. Those same words were spoken over each and every one of us when we were baptized. I baptize you now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, right, being baptized into the name of God, that is the only other, that's the only name that matters. And all others are reduced to secondary status. That name stands above all other names and determines who we are. And that is very clearly, this issue of naming, that's very clearly the problem in Corinth. They didn't know, the Corinthians, the meaning of their baptism whose name that they were baptized into. And it led to very serious division within the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And the only solution for the Corinthians was to relearn what their baptisms meant. What they were doing when they entered the waters. What this symbol communicated. And then to live into their baptism to be true to what baptism says about them. So this morning, we're going to conclude um, our digression about being in Christ by considering it through the lens of baptism. Baptism teaches us what it means to be united to Jesus as individuals and for our purposes this morning as a community. It teaches us the kind of church that we are supposed to be based on what the triune God has done for us in the gospel. So let's start this morning with the very tangled situation in Corinth. Now, Corinth is famous, rather infamous, for having very many problems. They were sleeping with prostitutes. Um, They were suing one another in secular courts. Um, They were even getting drunk at communion and ignoring the poor. But the most pressing issue, it seems, at this particular church is division, is this infighting that was happening between the members. And that's where the Apostle uh, Paul starts. That's what he addresses first. Beginning now in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and lastly, I am of Christ. So they're quarreling, they're infighting, is a matter of who they name themselves by. One group identifies with Paul, another with Apollos, and another with Peter, and then you have the real spiritual ones who 
identify with Jesus. And it's not merely identification, that's the problem, but what it leads to, and that's division. It became, in other words, they're naming themselves by these apostles, a marker of distinction. And that distinction leads to rivalry. And rivalry leads to competition, and competition leads to bitterness and jealousy. Because, as we've been saying, names are a matter of identity. This, as it's happening in the Corinthian church, is not a matter, is rather not a disinterested affair, where the various camps debate the merits of their leaders in a dispassionate and open-minded way. It was more personal than that. Feelings were hurt, egos were offended, and lines were drawn. And so what started out as mere disagreement boiled over into animosity. Now, in this sort of thing, conflict within a church is inevitable when we name ourselves by secondary things rather than by Christ. Our identities, right? That which defines you, that which defines me, rather than being a source of agreement, they are pitted against one another. I'm named by this thing. It defines me and not you. And hence, we can occupy the same space only for so long. Either we ignore it and then we embrace a superficial unity, or we address it and part ways. But the unity that is supposed to characterize the church is not mere tolerance like we have in our society, meaning you do your thing, um, I will do mine, and we will agree to leave each other alone, right? That's tolerance. What's required of us in the church is much deeper than tolerance. We are not yet the church as it's supposed to be by merely being cordial and nice with one another. Rather, what the apostle says um, to the Corinthians there in this passage is, I exhort you, brethren, that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. So there's no such thing as uh, solitary Christianity. The faith is not what someone does in their solitude something that belongs to our private lives and our leisure. Baptism, rather, declares that we are members of one another. And it's an all-or-nothing proposition. To have Christ is to have His people. To have the head is to have the body. Hence, the New Testament, all throughout, puts a remarkable emphasis on unity, on like-mindedness, and on brotherhood. So as long as we bear different names, as long as we bear different names, such unity cannot be achieved. So let's say, right, as a thought experiment, that we placed our primary identity as individuals and as a church in political or partisan names. How do you imagine that that project is going to go? That's going to look not a lot different from what we already see in our society, which is divided and hostile. And that's not a hypothetical. It's already playing out in many congregations across the nation where political division are splitting churches in two. Or what if we named ourselves by 
our ethnic and our cultural identities, or our theological and our doctrinal identities, or even more mundane things like our basic lifestyle and our personal taste, right, where this is what we united around. We would fare no better than the Corinthians. And ultimately, we face two problems. The first is that we differ too much in respect to our natural identities, in respect to the names that we take. Even within our congregation, there are generational, political, lifestyle, gender, and racial differences that stand between us. And these are real, and sometimes irreconcilable. And moreover, they can even be in conflict. To zero in on any one of these things and to make it the hub around which our community revolves would be disastrous. It would be unity in the name of something other than Christ, which is ultimately no unity at all. And the second problem is that these names or identities of ours are too shallow. They cannot bear the weight of unity. And thus to build our community upon them would be to build upon sand. We might catch a uh, cultural wave here and there and achieve moments of communal purpose, but it would soon fade. So rather than uh, minimizing our differences as a church, Right, rather than minimizing those, I want to maximize them. In mere earthly terms, in mere earthly terms, there is no genuine unity for us. Apart from Jesus, there is no um, other name that can bring us, can bring this collection of people together. Apart from Jesus, there is no other name that can keep this collection of people together. And so the sooner that we feel the distance between us in purely natural terms, the better. It will keep us from seeking unity on sub-Christian grounds. So how does the apostle address this division among the Corinthians? Look at what he says here in verses 13 through 15. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would say that you were baptized in my name. So what Paul does here is confront them with the true nature of their name game, showing them that it's worse than they imagine. Again, he asks, has Christ been divided? And their division, he means to say, has torn Christ apart. It's not merely an innocent disagreement, I prefer Peter or I prefer Paul, but it strikes at the heart of what the church is, the apostle says. The body of Christ is divided against itself. And what Paul does is he couches his rebuke of the Corinthians in the context of baptism, by naming themselves, by identifying themselves according to their preferred leaders, the Corinthians are demonstrating that they don't understand the meaning of their baptism. One group says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulos, and another, I am of Cephas. But Paul responds, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Why are you identifying with Paul? Why are you following 
Paul? Were, were you dunked into the waters in his name? He says, no. Rather, you were baptized into the name of Jesus. So their partisanship is in direct violation of their baptism. Within the church, right, there can be no, I am of this, or I am of that, because we've all been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. It's his name we bear, each and every one of us. And all other names or identities are relegated to a distant second place. So in sum, the Corinthians are leading with the wrong names. They don't understand their baptism. So, given that it's such a focus here, we need to ask the question, well, what is baptism? What does it teach us? What are we supposed to be learning and living up to through baptism? And at its most basic, baptism is a naming ceremony. Again, one is baptized into the name of Jesus. Repent, said Peter on the day of Pentecost, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 2.38. The scripture says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Acts 19.5. Now, we often hear baptism described as going public, right? I'm sure you've heard that designation before, or something like it. In other words, one is baptized as a public declaration of their commitment to Christ. So they might have been back and forth before. They might have been wavering on their commitment to the faith. But baptism seals the deal, right? I'm ready now, and I'm declaring this to the public. And it's announcement that they are taking things serious, so to speak. Now, I have no issues whatsoever with that understanding of baptism, so long as that we understand it's only one aspect of baptism. And it's not the main aspect either. Rather, the main aspect of baptism is not so much us declaring anything about ourselves, but God declaring something of us. The main aspect of baptism is this naming aspect. In baptism, the name of Jesus is bestowed upon us. It's given to us. We are His. We are claimed in baptism. So it's important to realize that when we're baptized, it's an entirely passive act. It's not something we do, but it's something that is done to us. Now, we're involved in the Lord's Supper, right, when we partake in a more active manner, taking and eating and drinking. In baptism, however, it's the opposite. Words are spoken over us, and words are spoken to us, and we are plunged beneath the waters, and we are raised above the waters. Again, it's not something that we do for ourselves. And the reason is this is that no one can take the holy name of God for themselves. right? I don't have authority to appropriate that name for myself. It's not like a brand name that I can buy at the store and wear upon my back. It's not a designation that I can claim like a father or a pastor or whatever. It's not even something that can be earned a name or a title that's given by winning an election or some great deed, this name is a gift. I cannot take it. I cannot claim the name of God and say, I wear it now. I can only receive it. It can only be given to me, and it's received in baptism. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So having risen from the grave, Christ now is endowed with all authority in heaven and on earth. He has become the world's universal Lord, and all things are subjected now to his authority and command. And thus, the church's mission is universally, um, is equally universal, rather. Go make disciples of all nations. So all authority is his, and he commissions the church to go to all nations, to humbly acknowledge his authority by becoming disciples, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Again, all, all, and all. So it's in this missional context, the conversion of the nations, that baptism is introduced and instituted. And what it does, this rite of ours, of going into the waters and coming out of the waters, is it dis- it's a distinguishing marker. It separates the nations from the church. Right? Believers... Those who have become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who have been baptized. At least those who are recognized um, as believers are those who have been baptized. So the nations are made disciples through baptism by being bestowed with the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism marks the church out from among the nations. Now if we had to maybe picture it or use an analogy, we could use that of a brand, like a cattle brand or a, a marking or a tattoo or something like that. So, so these livestock, right, are determined from those by the brand that they bear, by the marking that's seared into their skin. Or it could also be like a tattoo, especially in ancient Rome. Um, one regiment was um, I, uh, marked off from another regiment by the tattoo or the regimental mark that they had on their shoulder. So baptism, right, distinguishes the church from the nations. It marks it out from all other people because in the waters, we're stamped with the name of God. We're we're given the name of God, and now we bear the name of God. So we're claimed, and we're accounted for. Maybe another uh, important uh, illustration would be that of a wedding band. Um, not only does it symbolize the promises that have been made, but announces to everyone else that the one wearing it is accounted for. Sealed with the triune name in baptism, the church belongs to God. Hence, baptism is not optional. It's not something maybe that we often think of for the spiritual elite. Right, those who have attained this degree of spiritual maturity or uh, uh, complete sanctification in their life. And it's not also a decision that one makes when they're at last ready to take things serious. Rather, it's a command for everyone because it's not something we do. It's not ultimately about our commitment. It's about God's commitment to us. We're not declaring really anything in baptism, but something is being declared of us. We are not taking hold of something, but we're being taken hold of us. God claims us. 
and he gives us his name. So it's a gift. And so our worth, or lack thereof, does not enter the equation. Because if it did, right, if we had to reach some level of maturity before we could take upon ourselves the name of God, we'd never have it. We'd never be worthy of it. Now, to say uh, not optional is not to say uh, that it's necessary for salvation. One can indeed be saved apart from baptism. But that's not the point here. We're not looking for excuses why not to be baptized. It's a command. If you've heard and believed in the gospel, you must be baptized. Read through the book of Acts, and that's the way it goes every single time. It's the message preached, it's faith, and then it's baptism. Just like that. And that's the way one enters into the Christian faith. So, back now to the situation in Corinth. We bear this name that is above all other names. It's given to us in the waters of baptism. So all other names are reduced to minimal importance. We went into the waters stamped and claimed by other names. Those were what defined us. I am of this and I am of that. But those have been washed away. We come up from the waters bearing Jesus' name baptized into it. And this is what the Corinthians failed to understand. Again, Paul asked, were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, he asked, what are you doing identifying yourselves and giving yourselves to these other names? They, they failed to live up to their baptisms, to understand them. And so for us, this is the matter, right? When we think about what it means to be in Christ, is that we live up to our baptisms as a church, as individuals, and what they mean for us. Because despite all our irreconcilable differences, the competing names that we name ourselves by, one name stands above them all. It alone defines us, and it unites us. So we may be worlds apart, naturally speaking, You and I might be separated by generations. You and I might be separated by different uh, views on uh, all sorts of things, different upbringing, different background, and have no commonality between us. But that's fine, because that's not the type of unity that we're seeking in the church. That's not the kind of oneness we're trying to create. We're seeking a unity that comes from Jesus and his gospel. Those other things are trivial, and they don't matter. Thus, like the Apostle says, that there be no divisions among us, and that we be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, we need to leave behind these former names, right? these other things that compete to define us, and we need to press into our new name, the one given to us in baptism. So I can't come to you in my pre-baptismal identity, but only in the name of Jesus, And likewise, you cannot come to me and seek fellowship and seek uh, uh, anything related to genuine Christian koinonia um, other than in the name of Jesus. Because there's no real fellowship between us, no genuine fellowship that's not mediated first by Jesus. He is the one that unites us. He's the one that stands between each one of us. Hence, Our communion as a church is based solely, solely upon Jesus Christ. 
Apart from him, there's strife. But he is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. Enmity and indifference and contradiction are all healed in him. A community that would never otherwise be is made possible through the gospel. Again, think about the collection of people we have here. Is there any other thing, is there any other identity that we could place forward that would bring these people together? It's the name of Jesus. It's only through him that this collection, this group can be together. So our church is not ultimately a collection of like-minded individuals who share the same values and agenda on every last detail. That's not the unity that we have, but that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must be careful to keep it that way and not seek communion on some other grounds. This happens sometimes in churches where it gathers a community based on something other than Jesus. Right, there's an air of excitement, or it's a hip and exciting church. Or maybe it's a, there's a certain friendliness to um, a societal cause that brings people in. Or maybe there's a, a program that, 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 that unites everything, and it's built around that. And it holds together for a time. It does, but then it fizzles out because those bonds aren't strong enough. The only thing that can hold us together as a community, and make us one, is the gospel. And so again, that being the case, we need to move past our differences and press into what unites us. That's Jesus. And so long as we come together in any other name, it can only mean more loneliness and frustration. You know, I can look around and feel frustrated because I don't see anyone like me. I'm alone in my season of life, maybe one thinks. I'm alienated in my cares and my thinking from others. We don't share this. And what happens is the church is not an occasion for comfort and solace, but for further discouragement. Because I feel alone. I don't feel like I fit in or like I belong. And that's where gathering, coming together apart from our baptismal identity, bearing the name of Jesus, that's what it gets us. But when we come together in the name of Jesus, right? when we come together not saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am this, that, or whatever, but saying, I am of Christ. I've been baptized into Christ. It's a different story. Um, Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. So, I no longer come to you seeking community on natural grounds. I don't come in just my basic identity. But I come to you baptized and clothed in Christ. And so also, you come to me not according to your upbringing, not according to your stage of life, not according to any of that, but according to the fact that you are clothed in Christ. So there's neither boomer nor millennial. There's neither family nor individual. There's neither right nor left. We are all one in Christ. And although those natural differences still linger, and though they are sometimes a cause of tension, they're transcended. Though you and I might be worlds apart, 
sharing almost no common ground in natural things, we do share Christ. And that's far greater. And that's what brings us together. And only by coming together through Him, only by seeking fellowship with one another through Him, can we have the community that we seek. Genuine unity and solidarity. So, what I want to invite you to do is to remember your baptism. I didn't know what I was doing when I was baptized. I mean, I, was, I believed, but I didn't know why I was being baptized. I just got sort of pressured into it. That doesn't change the fact that it has all this meaning. To, to remember it. And to remember whose name you bear. And that that name unites all of us together. It's that noble, noble name of Jesus that defines us. So let all of the names pass into oblivion. He opens the door to God and he opens the door to one another. He is the one mediator whose blood makes peace on things in heaven and on earth. So now, as the supreme expression of our community, we come to Holy Communion. In it, we are united to Christ and we are united to one another. Through it, we partake of the same spiritual drink and the same spiritual food. Since there is one bread, the apostle says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So, as we prepare now, as I invite you forward to receive the elements and to take them back, um, I just want to encourage you to open up your heart to Christ, but also to one another through Him. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. So come receive the elements now, and I will lead us in communion in just a moment.